This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Despite the stigma of being called a tourist, journalist Elizabeth Becker notes that there were one billion international trips in a single year in 2012, according to the UN Tourism Organization. In her new book, Overbooked, The Exploding Business of Travel and Tourism, Becker traces the history of tourism and points to the challenges for the fast-growing industry, which is currently $6.5 trillion of the world's economy. In this interview with Knowledge at Wharton, Becker discusses our responsibilities as tourists and countries' responsibilities as they develop their tourism industries. We're here today with Elizabeth Becker, author of the book, Overbooked, The Exploding Business of Travel and Tourism. Elizabeth, thanks for speaking with us. Oh, it's good to be here. So you spent five years working on this book, including several trips where you were basically being a tourist. Um, Mm -hmm. But did you approach those visits differently than when you had traveled in the past? Totally. Um, You know, the product of tourism is that travel to a foreign country, which I'm writing about. And you can only judge the product by acting as a tourist. So, for instance, China is a very good example. I spent the first few weeks interviewing people, as I normally do, to do research. I'd already done <clears throat> classic research at home and then had my interview subjects, and I was a journalist researcher. Then my husband flew over, and we went on a tour. And then I did not do anything but act like a tourist to see the kind of product I, I, you know, to see how the service was, to see how all the things I had been told about, how they in fact came to fruition on a travel trip, and it was a, it was a, it was a very good exercise for me. Was it hard to kind of like take off the one the reporter hat and just leave it there, or vice versa, when you were doing these two different parts of researching the book? Yeah, um, uh, <laughs> it was very funny in parts because. Um, you, as a reporter, you, you, you have to nurture your curiosity. As a tourist, it's a totally different curiosity. You're not asking, um, you, you sort of want to know, well, what to eat, so on and so forth, instead of saying, why do you do this, and have you been brainwashed about that? So, yes, it was different. Um, and um, as I say in the book, when I was on a tour, a, a lovely um, ecotourism trip in Costa Rica on a ship, I did not tell the other tourists that I was, in a sense, going to write about the trip. And so I had to act just like a tourist. And it was good. It was a, it was a good discipline for me. And it was the um, only way, in fact, that I could have made any judgments about the way tourism is operating now and the effect it has both on the tourists and on the people they're visiting. So it was, it was excellent. And it, it, it informed the way that I ended up writing the book. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the examples of the book, now the book is kind of categorized into profiles of different countries and different mm-hmm. types of tourism. And one of the examples in the book of tourism done right was in France, where tourism's really been integrated into kind of major government policy efforts. Yes. But you also point out, and I thought this was really interesting, that the French government kind of prefers to underplay this in public. And, and to me, it kind of tied back to some of the discussions you had about how there's sort of this general lack of talk about the business side of tourism. And how do you feel like that's le- that led? to some of the conflicts and challenges you discuss in the book? Tourism, people don't even like to be called a tourist. It sounds, uh, people say they're going on a trip, that they're traveling. They're not saying, I'm a tourist. Tourist sounds like someone in um, bulgy Bermuda shorts and um, socks. Tourism has a sort of frivolous reputation so that even though it is the major 
single sector in France, and it nurtures all the other sectors. They, they, as one of the officials said, they would rather say my son is in um, is an hotelier, not that he's in tourism. <clears throat> and it affects uh, the seriousness with which the industry is held. For instance, I recommend that tourism should be at the table when we're talking about climate change in any sort of conference because it's so essential uh, about discussing the environmental footprint. But as long as it's treated as an afterthought, um, what we do when we're not doing anything serious, that it's our pastime, not our major effort, a major industry, then it's going to be harder to tackle some of those problems because tourism has steadily become a central industry in this globe. Now, how much do you think has also been contributed to the sort of this lack of talk of the business side? Like you make the point that a lot of newspapers that used to maybe have beat reporters covering the business side of tourism or media organizations in general have kind of those positions have gone away just because of the general consolidation in the industry. I mean, does not having those watchdogs out there or maybe watchdogs in other senses besides journalism have an impact as well? Well, <clears throat> in fact, there were the problem is almost specific to this industry. Most of what you read in newspapers or online, on see broadcast on your very screens, is the consumer side, where to go and what to do. So the travel sections don't aren't watchdogs, and neither are the um, 24 hours in Copenhagen and my favorite Caribbean vacation. So that they've never had specifically great watchdogs. The best watchdogs have been... Um, Sort of nonprofits that grown have, that have grown up to try to to discuss it because uh, it's been only recently with the explosion of the industry that <clears throat> people have seen how it is changing their communities. Now it seems like I mean for like issues like climate change and things like that. I mean there are issues that I think it's safe to say a broad spectrum of people take seriously. But do you feel like be, when it's climate change discussed in the lens of decreasing tourism or stopping some forms of tourism, do you think people, I mean, either take it less seriously or tend to respond more defensively just because it's hitting at maybe kind of a tender spot or something that's really important to a company's, a country's economy? Oh, you're totally right. Um, when I have been around talking about my book these last few weeks, um, the, I start my talks by saying I'm not going to take away um, your your right to travel. That's not what I'm <laughs> talking about. People consider the, the right to travel a very important part of their lives. But with that right comes the responsibility. And when you put it in that kind of um, framework, they begin to understand it. And um, if, you know, just when um, here in the United States, if a politician wants to raise the gas tax to pay for energy, um, alternative energy, People are, are not happy if they commute to work every day and rely on their cars. Well, multiply that um, many times over because everyone wants to take a trip. So one of the points of this book is to say this is an industry and um, you are despoiling this area, you are uh, damaging this culture, so on and so forth. So if you want to protect the places you love, you should except that you're going to have different responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of easy to forget those, I would think, sometimes when you're kind of going to a place for a week and then mm -hmm. you're going back to your life. Yes, exactly. Now, the book also touch touches on the growth of 
dark tourism, including a pretty shocking description of how the Cambodian government has positioned both the, the former torture center of the Khmer Rouge and some of the killing fields as, as tourist destinations. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Why do you think this type of tourism is growing in popularity, and how do you think it kind of exemplifies the delicate balance governments face when trying to both you know grow tourism and also kind of respect these cultural sites in their, in their countries? It's, it, it's a fascinating thing. I can't completely answer that question because, as you can see, I, I was uh, flummoxed by all of this. Um, the, they, they discovered that Westerners were fascinated with the Tool Slang Torture Center, the Khmer Rouge Torture Center, and um, they decided to make that a major tourism center with all the tour buses going there so that even though this is central to Cambodian history, you rarely see Cambodians there. It's almost all foreigners. And that's not an accident because it is pitched to foreigners. If it were uh, pitched to Cambodians, it would be completely um, reorganized and it would, have, it would have, the museum would show more about the victims and the history as it is now. It's a, it's a voyeurism that I've, I found um, upsetting in many respects. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, I think Cambodia is also a good example. It just seems like they, like, in trying to kind of help this country recover from that really devastating time in its history, they've really made a lot of interesting choices in terms of how to grow tourism. I mean, how do you think their story kind of exemplifies, like, the choices that governments have made or have to make when they're trying to make this an industry, but also not sort of destroy the environment there? Well, um, I think comparing uh, Cambodia with Costa Rica is, is interesting because... Cambodia did not um, respect all kinds of parts of the of the society and the environment when they built up tourism. They certainly have the numbers now, but the, it has not enriched uh, the average Cambodian, and it has been quite destructive in many parts of the country, whereas Costa Rica did the opposite. They have um, used tourism to protect what is unique and beautiful about Costa Rica, so they were pioneers in ecotourism. And what Underneath it all, when you are using tourism as your um, development scheme, you're looking at your country and essentially you're monetizing. You're saying, okay, how much is it worth to have birds flying in the jungle versus how much is it worth if we cut down that jungle and put in a um, spa for um, wealthy foreigners? Now, that's looking at it only as a budget, whereas the smarter countries say, okay, how much are we going to help the locals and what do they want and is it better for our country in the long run to keep that jungle or can we make an eco resort where we keep the jungle but we can still have some um, sustainable tourism and Costa Rica see no question they went out about it with a with a broader view of what was necessary for the country and all of the people in using tourism to increase the, um, the economy and to build up the middle class. Whereas Cambodia, the tourism tends to not help the average Cambodian. In fact, in many respects, it hurts the Cambodians who are thrown out of their villages. And it has helped um, an elite that is often quite corrupt. Mm-hmm. 
Now, uh, there's you devote two chapters to the massive growth in tourism, both like tourism to China and then also the massive growth, growth of the Chinese as tourists. And I mean, it also pops up, I think, just about every chapter of the book, I think. How do you think the increased Chinese influence will impact international tourism in the future? It seems like this has now become sort of almost the target group that a lot of these countries are catering to because they're the biggest. I'm not very good at prophesizing the future, but I can tell you what's going on now, and it was is astonishing. Countries are doing studies of the Chinese tourists to figure out how you can welcome them and still um, remain um, a, a viable tourism spot. There's so many. Uh, they Chinese tend to be big shoppers. They tend not to want to spend a lot of money on their hotels. This is this is an average. Not every Chinese, of course, acts this way, but. They tend to like to gamble. For instance, the studies show that they would rather go to the old home of an artist rather than to the museum to see the paintings, all kinds of things. And they are now switching a lot of their industry to accommodate them, including um, a lot more Chinese restaurants all over the world because Chinese tend not to, at this stage, like foreign food. So that's one thing. But overall, overall, um, if China... If the Chinese get it right in their own country, that's going to be huge. But if they get it wrong, which is where I'm afraid it's sort of going now with the pollution and all, it's also not going to be very um, good. Mm -hmm. Now, you interviewed the tourism ministers of several countries for this book, but not in the U.S. because the government here got rid of that position in the 1990s. How would you say that move kind of reflected American views of tourism, and then how have you found that that's been changing since then? We never had a full um, Department of Tourism at all. It was a small, small but but dynamic office within the Department of Commerce. <clears throat> and what has happened is that um, the United States has had a very um, lumpy and um, not well thought out of industry because there's no central government. Um, thinking about it. Uh, what happened was that um, it, tourism became part of the Republican versus Democratic struggle over small and large government or smart and dumb government. And when the Republicans took over the House, won the, the House, um, Speaker, then Speaker Newt Gingrich declared that government should be out of tourism, and that's why it was, it was um, zeroed out of the budget. This led to... Um, turning their back on helping foreigners learn about the United States overseas before U.S. embassies did have people to help the locals figure out their trips to the United States. That's gone, which is huge because, for instance, France has at least 250 people around the world posted to help foreigners make their trips to France. But more importantly, it meant that there was, there was no way to encourage the kind of tourists you want to visit, the wealthier ones from Europe, Asia, South America. And instead we've had um, half of our tourists were um, day trippers from, say, Canada or Mexico. And that's, um, that's had a big dent on the um, tourism. And then there's another aspect to the United States. Because of our federal system, the states have their own tourism agencies. And they've been, like everything else, they've in, on the state level, most state tourism agencies are, are losing their budgets. So that um, when you have the states responsible for tourism, they can't compete in the world. You, I went to some of these trade fairs for uh, travel and tourism, 
And a country like Germany would have a beautiful booth. A country like Brazil would have a great booth. And then there'd be a string of, say, you know, maybe a dozen or so states who would have little teeny little booths of canoeing in Delaware or turn of the leaves in Vermont, it's, 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 um, it was um, sad, sort of. I mean, it's almost like they can't compete, uh, the U.S. can't compete as a country because the states are too busy competing with each other. Right, and, um, and not seeing the big picture, whereas a foreigner doesn't care whether they're in Delaware or Montana, they want to know what the options are. And so finally, um, and, I, and then 9-11 had a huge impact because of the immediate changes in the border, how people are treated when they come to the airport, what's required to enter the country, and the visas, how much more difficult it was to get visas, so that overall, when tourism took off at the end of the Cold War, which essentially opened up the whole world to tourism, the United States uh, flatlined, so that from 95 until a few years ago, there was essentially no growth. Mm -hmm. Now, what do you hope that travelers will take away from this book? I mean, reading this, I mean, I think you've said you said, say in the book, you don't want them to cancel their trips, but what do you hope that they take away from it? That um, they may, I, I, one, if they're anything, we've all become a little lazy as travelers, and I think we need to do a lot more research and be a lot more thoughtful and careful about our travel. I would recommend fewer trips and staying longer, that the, um, we're sort of fly-by kind of fast food kind of travel versus the, um, the thoughtful travel that we say we want to do and we don't. So do a lot of homework, maybe learn a language, <laughs> which is um, anathema to too many Americans. But essentially, don't take a lot of you know four or five day trips. Take some very well thought out two week trips, and heaven forbid a whole month. But um, take fewer trips and make them um, more thoughtful. So a bit more like back to tourism's roots with sort of the grand European tour of months or years that people well, used to take. We can't be grand Europeans. Right. Who it would happen, but, I mean, a little bit more like, say, um, for our, our parents or grandparents, who for whom um, travel was a great privilege, and they were very thoughtful, and um, they actually read history books before they left instead of relying on two paragraphs in the Lonely Planet Guide to figure out where they are. Mm-hmm. Now, what about governments? I mean, what do you hope the governments take away from the book? That... Um, that tourism is a, an industry that affects the entire society and that uh, decisions that affect tourism, how you regulate it, how it affects your, the, how tourists will affect your society, that, that means all kinds of voices should be heard as you um, plan for tourism. That um, In France, for instance, I focused on the city of Bordeaux which has gone through a 10-year transformation that has made it a tourist mecca, that occurred because the local mayor and the local people, all the people, the arts people, the, the community activists, everybody was involved in figuring out how they were going to improve their city to bring in tourism, and it meant that they also made the city the kind of city they want to live in. And so tourism is one of those industries that involves everyone, because the tourists are going to be coming and uh, visiting your area. And then largely on a government um, level, I think um, there should be a a serious look at tourism. And um, for economic stimulus, I think the president said that every Brazilian who comes up to the United States 
uh, spends five to six thousand dollars. That's huge. And do we want to use that as a stimulus? And how do we want to um, use it to improve the economy and the society? And now one final question. Um, it sounds like from the, reading the book that there were, I mean, you took a lot more travels than could actually all be detailed in the book. Mm-hmm. So if yeah. you could add one more story about one more country to the book, what would it be? Um, boy, that's a good question. Um, what did I leave out? Well, I would have added Germany. Um, I couldn't do, I couldn't add Germany. I, um, I couldn't do much on Thailand, which was so, but um, I think Germany was a, was a surprise because we think of it, you know, historically as, you know, from the wars, and now uh, Berlin might be the most interesting city in um, Europe, and the, and the Germans are very, very conscious that they have made um, their country very welcome to the business traveler, and that's one aspect that I, I, would, I would love to, to build up, the whole idea of the business traveler and um, conventions and meetings and things like that. Mm-hmm. Great. Elizabeth, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.